So I welcome you to this wonderful night. And it's my prayer that we are going to open our hearts so that our God may continue to speak unto us. Amen. To those who were there yesterday, we had an awesome time. And I want to believe tonight we are going to have another wonderful time in the presence of God. Just open your heart and let God speak to you. With these words, let us be upstanding as we will come, Reverend Dr. Jason Gawut. What do we say to our visitor? We love you by force and by choice. We love you by force, force and by choice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you. I remember that from last year. We love you by force and by choice. It's a beautiful truth in the gospel, isn't it? Well, it's good to be back with you. I trust uh, that your time last night was well spent, so thank you. Thank you for those who are here that weren't able to make it last night. Um, I, I'm glad that you are, are here. I would like to uh, make sure that those who are here tonight who weren't there last night, that you receive a copy of the book. So afterwards, make sure you come forward and, and get a copy. And uh, rest assured, it is a smaller book that you can uh, digest uh, very quickly in the middle of your studies. I know a lot of classes and demands. That's the nature of university. Um, but hopefully it's going to be a blessing for you. Um, I know someone already has started to read it and had some good feedback. Uh, so I'm thankful for that. Okay, you have your Bibles with you. Go ahead and flip to Matthew chapter 28. The theme of the conference is the greatness of the Great Commission. So we are going to basically stay there in the passage here, Matthew 28, and then we'll launch out as we go um, tomorrow night and then, of course, Saturday night as well. But tonight's message is called The Prophetic Call. The Prophetic Call. So let's read the text. I'll pray and then we will get right to work. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and, note this, teaching them to obey. That's our focus tonight. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching them to obey. The prophetic call. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to be gathered together for the purpose of studying your word. I ask and pray that your spirit would guide our discussion and assist us in learning to carry out this prophetic call that you have on every one of our lives. Help us to carry it out into every single area of life, and I ask and pray this in Christ's name, amen. So last night we talked about presuppositionalism and the superiority of Christ over all attempts of man's aspiration to be a god. Remember the mind, that discussion from last night, 
Um, if you missed it and you want to hear it, you can actually listen to it on our church's website. It's just crosscrownchurch.com. You can find it there. Um, crosscrownchurch.com. And so we, presuppositionalism undercuts all of man's aspiration to deity. There is this great war that's in human history, and this war is something that spills into every single area of life. It's a war of antithesis. Antithesis meaning the opposites, right? Two things that are opposed to each other. It's a war of antithesis, which we will actually speak about tomorrow night, Lord willing. It's a war, no doubt. And this antithesis, or what we can call these opposing worldviews, is between God and evil. God and evil. Um, or the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan. The Satan, as the Bible describes him. Or what we might call, there's this great war in history between righteousness and unrighteousness. Now again, that's tomorrow's discussion, so I don't, I, I don't want to get too far into that. I just want to point that out now, because as is usually the case, these sort of things blend together as we go. Tonight I want to focus on one aspect of the Great Commission that I believe is largely overlooked. I believe it's largely overlooked, and this is because we are usually focused on doing something in the name of the Great Commission that the Great Commission doesn't really speak of. And I'll tell you what that is. I think it has everything to do with the concept of making converts. Making converts. Notice that the Great Commission doesn't say, go and make converts tallying those numbers and then boasting about it. That's a big thing in my country. If you have a large church, you are automatically considered to be successful. No, not faithfulness, not righteousness. We have a big problem right now. I, we've, we've had um, megachurch leader after megachurch leader fall into some sort of sin. And I'm talking not just one here and there, but a lot of them. Um, a lot of them who, did you all see recently, do you know who Benny Hinn is? He just basically recanted, supposedly, his view on the prosperity gospel. He changed, he said, I've learned a lot about the Bible and all those things I used to teach I don't believe anymore. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like, uh, but it's just interesting. But we've had pastors who have had moral failing, failures. They've uh, a husband who has walked out on his wife, uh, men who are under the pressure of people, uh, millions of people knowing who they are and the pressure of being famous and they fall and they stumble and they crumble. And a lot of times it has to do with this thinking. We think that the Bible tells us we're supposed to just make converts and tell everybody how many we have in our church and that's the goal. That's not the goal. Now do I believe in making converts? Absolutely. Absolutely. If, if you're here and you, you don't know Jesus, one, why are you here? But two, <laughs> you need to know him. So the church, though, the church has a prophetic call to proclaim the gospel and see people converted and brought into the kingdom of God. So don't misunderstand what I'm, I'm saying. I'm not saying that conversion is not something we should consider. We should consider it. But this is oftentimes, honestly, where we stop. We convert people. We baptize them. All right, how many of you were raised in a Christian home? 
your parents, okay? All right, you, you, you know how to ride that bicycle, don't you? You've been in a Christian home. So you, you understand kind of how this thing works itself out. You, you, you confess your sins to God and you ask for his forgiveness and the Bible says that you can be born again. You can be changed. Your heart is changed. It's, it's, um, it's different now. You, you love the things you used to hate, and then you hate the things you used to love. Your life is different. Um, you were baptized at some point, presumably. If you're not, we need to talk about that later. And then we leave off what I think is the most important part of our calling, which is the rest of the Great Commission, which says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Now, look at the last part of the verse there that's in question. It says, all that I've commanded you. This is the goal of our teaching. This is the goal of your life, right? Your goal is conformity to Christ's commands. My assumption is that you here who profess the name of Christ, your goal in life, you want to obey Jesus Christ. Okay? You want to do what is pleasing to your Lord. So we're starting there. That's the goal. Conformity to Christ's commands. You want your life to be that way, and you want your, the lives of people you know to be that way. We want all of Zambia to be obedient to Jesus Christ. I want all of America to do the same. I'm not optimistic on that, but God can change hearts. But we are tasked with the responsibility to teach the nation's obedience, but not just a vague obedience about empty platitudes and other niceties and things like that. You know, the, the, the coffee mug, which has a saying on it, and it's just, oh, it's cute, that's nice. You know, I can do all things. You can drink coffee. That's not what Paul was talking about. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. The man was persecuted. He's talking about following Jesus in the face of suffering, immense suffering, like Congo-level war suffering. Not you sitting there with your feet propped up with coffee and a Fanta. That's not the same. So we have to get past this. In my country, that's, we love that stuff. We love the niceties stuff. We love the nice, safe Christianity. But we are, you need to know this, we are, quite literally, we are called to teach the nations to obey the law of God. Jesus didn't say, teach them to, you know, to obey a few things that I said. Or teach them, teach the nations to be nice to each other. That's not what he said. He, he's He's putting forth a demand. Teach the nations obedience. And what is obedience? Conformity to the law of God, the standard of God. See, Christ has issued orders and commands to the disciples, and thus to us too. And those commands, guess what? They're meant to be obeyed. They're not suggestions. They're not possibilities. They are commands. The sort of, you know, thou shalt not commands. See, they're not possibilities. They're commands. Jesus didn't tell them, you know, teach, teach, 
teach them a few things, but largely, largely just make disciples that do whatever it is they want to do. That's not what he told us. We are teaching obedience to everything Christ has commanded. And everything Christ has commanded is follow, found in the Bible. It's found in the Bible. So what is the aim? What is the aim of our prophetic function in the world? You all here today, tonight, you have a prophetic call on your life. And I'm not saying that it's your job to predict the future. When I say a prophetic call, I mean you have a job to do to be a light to the people around you. Okay? That's your job. It's all of our jobs to do that. So what's the aim, though? Well, <laughs> the aim is this. Making disciples who are covenantally tied to Christ through baptism. That's a key part. Baptism means something. And making disciples whose lives are marked by obedience to the Word of God. Listen to Psalm chapter 138, verses 1 through 5. And you can write that down. I'll give you a second before I read it. And you might want to look it up later. Psalm 138, verses 1 through 5. Here's what it says. I give, thanks, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Isn't that interesting? Before all the other gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted your name and your word above everything. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased my strength of soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you. Boy, to see President Trump praise the living God. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of, of the Lord. In other words, listen, in the midst of all the false gods that we see around us, we are to sing praises with our whole heart. And I don't have to tell you to do that. I walk into a church service in Africa, and it is just on fire. Singing, dancing, praising God in the midst of the other gods. And not only that, we're to give thanks to God for his love and his faithfulness. Amen? But we do this because God has exalted his name and his word above everything. 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 That's what Psalm 138 says. God has exalted his word above everything. He has exalted it above the University of Zambia. He's, a, he's exalted it above the United States of America. He's exalted above the United Nations. He's exalted above communist China. He is exalted above every single thing. So we honor God because the purposes of God are going forth into the world and all the kings of the earth are summoned and called to praise him, to sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. So you and I, we are saved out of the darkness of the world, brought into the light of God's saving grace, and then guess what? We are sent back out into the world to be a prophetic light for all to see. It's not just that you all have been saved from your sin. You have been saved to this great commission. Don't lose sight of that. 
I was lamenting earlier while we were um, waiting and getting ready with just the state of Christianity in America because we have missed that call. The problems that we see in my country are because the church has decided to not do its job. So, quite literally, we are saved to revere God among the nations. Zambia is not too small to have an influence among the nations. Zambia has a great reputation in Africa. Education and economics and, and industry and innovation. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy, I can get a taxi ride here and have a nice conversation. You get a taxi ride in New York City, you might get yelled at. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> it's a gamble. <laughs> you have an opportunity here that my country really doesn't. Because while we have, obviously, um, you know, technological advancement and all these other things, I mean, America produced the iPhone. The iPhone's a, a genius of a device. But it's not anything good if we can't follow Jesus. Because we'll take this beautiful gift and we'll destroy it. I said this the other night, but blessings become a curse the minute you think it's owed to you. A blessing quickly becomes a curse the minute that you think it's owed to you. The minute you think that you're something special, and isn't God lucky to have you? Don't be thinking that. So we're saved to revere God among the nations, and you're to contribute in that. And I, I hope you can see the progressive nature of the Great Commission. What are we supposed to be doing? Why are you at the University of Zambia? Listen, you are not here to study about microbiology. You're not here to study about this, that, and the other. You are here for the purpose of you finding your role in the kingdom of God through the means of something like biology in order to make disciples, in order for God to be revered among the nations. That's why you're here. Don't tell me you're here because you want to get a degree. You're here for the wrong reasons then. You are here to honor Christ Jesus, your Lord, find your calling, and make disciples of the nations. You are quite literally to bring your sphere of influence under the dominion of Christ Jesus. So making disciples, that's what we are supposed to be doing. People, disciples are people who revere God. But I want to make sure that we have a working definition of what a disciple actually is because a disciple is not someone who just says with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, though that is an important component. Here's what a disciple is. A disciple is a Christian whose aim is glorifying God in absolute obedience to Christ. Um, it's kind of a longer definition. I, I know some of you are writing. A, Christ, a disciple is a Christian whose aim is glorifying God in absolute obedience to Christ. Right? Glorifying God in absolute obedience to Christ and his law word. That's what I call the Bible, his law word. Because when God speaks, it's fixed, it's law, it's true. A Christian whose aim is glorifying God in absolute obedience to Christ and his law word in every single area of life, 
glorifying God in absolute obedience to Christ and His law word in every single area of life with an eye towards seeing to it that there are more people doing the same thing. Every single area of life with an eye, your eye with a, with a goal, something else is happening here, with an eye towards seeing to it that there are more people doing the same. A Christian whose aim is glorifying God in absolute obedience to Christ and His law word in every single area of life with an eye, with a goal, towards seeing to it that there are more people doing the same. That there are more people doing the same. How many can honestly say that you've made a disciple? I've asked that question even in America. I'm not sure we, we really understand. Glorifying God in absolute obedience to Christ. You're sold out for the gospel. You are praising God. You are praying. You are in his word. You are learning. You are trying to, to use your studies at the University of Zambia to glorify God. You are, you are after the law of God. You want to obey Christ with every thought, word, and deed. And then sometimes we stop. We stop. And we think that the point of the Christian life is just for me to hide in the corner and do my own thing. And then we forget that you are, too, you are called to this process of seeing to it that others are doing the same thing. That's your goal. That's what a disciple is. See, in my, my tradition, which is Reformed Presbyterianism, um, we understand quite well the Great Commission part, which speaks of baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, we baptize our infants. Some people don't believe that. But we catechize them. We teach them about what it means to be in covenant with God. But the part we miss, the part we miss about being in covenant with God has to do with obedience to God in every single area of life. And that calling extended to every single person. And let me tell you why this is the case. We oftentimes think that, that the only true holy calling is being a pastor. All of you, you're not really serving God until you're a pastor. That's what we think. That's what we perpetuate in, a, in my country. Well, all of you studying whatever it is you're studying, you know, that's like... You know, that's economy seating. I'm in first class. Now what? I'm driving the plane. Because I'm more holy. Because I'm a pastor. That's the mindset that we perpetuate. You know, it's the pastors and elders. They're the ones truly doing the Lord's work. Everyone else is just a regular Christian doing regular Christian duties. But pastors, gasp. They're the ones who are really serving the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, this thinking is altogether wrong. I don't need that pressure. I know our chaplain doesn't need that pressure. The kingdom of God does not hinge on pastors. Thank the Lord. See, in God's economy, there's no second-class citizenry. There's no second-class citizens. There are no categories of various Christians who have more importance than others in the kingdom of God. I say this as a pastor and a church planter who has a vested interest in Zambia, who has a vested interest in Africa, who has a vested interest in global missions. 
See, I'm no more important than anyone else in our church. Our church is in the little town of Warrington in Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., Babylon. I'm just not more important than them. I'm not. God doesn't need me than he, more than he needs others in my church. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. God has a calling and a purpose for everyone who calls on his name. And this calling and purpose has everything to do with the Great Commission. So let's get personal for a moment. You are college students, most of you, that is. Um, permit me a moment to tell you what the goal of your lives should not be, and then I'm going to tell you what the goal of your lives should be. Your goal is not comfort or fame. It's not. You've heard of a little place called Hollywood. Everybody wants to be in Hollywood. They want to be the next movie star. Your goal is not comfort or fame. Your goal is not money or popularity. Your goal is not comfort or fame or popularity or money. Your goal isn't to be a household name among the nations. We don't need any more rival gods. We have plenty of those. Your goal is not to be safe and wealthy and well-known. Your task before God is not to be safely tucked away in your house or your room with your feet propped up you can drink an orange Fanta, or pineapple is more my favorite. That's not the point of your lives. And we do not have time for you to waste your lives on that nonsense. We don't have time for it. Your job is to be totally immune to giving any weight to what the world thinks about you. Your job is to be totally immune to giving any weight or concern as to what the world thinks about you. Did you catch that? Your job is to be totally and completely and entirely immune to concerning yourself or giving any weight to what the world thinks of you. In my country, we have celebrities. Have you heard of them? They're all over the place. Famous actors and actresses in movies, musicians. You have them here. You have musicians that are popular, that sell out stadium crowds, and everybody knows who they are. Their face is plastered all over the town. You have politicians. In my country, we have gone from politicians as being um, civil servants who are trying to do good for people. Now it's about who has the most money and who has the most popularity. It's a popularity contest. And because of that, it's a celebrity contest. People will fawn over Donald Trump when he walks into a room trying to get an autograph. He's halfway incompetent, but they need his autograph. So people sign autographs, they dress really fancy, they sell out arenas and stadiums, they are known across the world, and people think highly of them until sadly they have a drug addiction or they commit suicide. 
and they realize they're going unfulfilled. See, this longing for stardom and popularity, it gets exponentially worse with social media. Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat, all of it ends up being a trap for wanting to be recognized, wanting to be known, wanting the attention of the world. And to what ends? <laughs> a few minutes of fame which fades away? Are you trying to cover your depression and your sadness by trying to be known? No one, listen, no one is going to remember where your grave is located. No one. Where this social media life where you get to live a fake life in front of your cell phone camera. When you're absolutely empty inside with no real hope apart from Christ. See, all I'm saying is, is you were made for more than what the fleeting passions of the world can give you. You were made for more than that. You were made for a prophetic witness. You have a prophetic call on your life. And that means every single one of you in this room. Not just me, not just our chaplain. All of you. You're either in the army of Christ and you are laboring against the forces of evil. Or you are propped up sitting back consuming your mind with things that don't ultimately matter. Now I'm not saying, you know, drop out of school. and I'm not saying that. We're looking for maturity here and balance. So you were made for this prophetic witness. You have a call on your life, and Jesus demands that you carry it out. He doesn't suggest it. He commands it. He demands it. He demands it for every single area of life, every job, every calling, every institution. All of it has the prophetic responsibility to carry forth the gospel of the kingdom of God. See, from the Old Testament, we learn a lot about this calling. God chose Adam and Eve, you recall? Yet what happened? They failed in the dominion mandate, what, what we're calling the prophetic call. They failed in that. God chose Noah. If you remember, though, Noah had his share of problems, too. He gets off the ark. What's the first thing he does? Build a, wine, a, a vineyard. And then what does he do? He drinks too much. And then he sins. Well, that didn't take very long. I mean, you just got off the ark. Give it a few days. <laughs> and then we get to Genesis chapter 12, and then we have the story of God choosing the pagan Abram, who was a pagan, not worshiping the God of Israel. There was no Israel. There was no covenant until he, he was the father of that covenant. And he chose Abram to carry forth God's purpose of making his name great among the nations. And obviously, you know, we know Abram had his share of problems as well. But what is clear is that the answer to the problem of sin in the world was the choosing of a family, a covenantal family. Abram, take your wife, leave, go to a place that I will show you. And if that's me, uh, I'm asking some questions. Where are we going? Why am I leaving my family? Is there going to be internet? <laughs> Can I take my iPad? <clears throat> I'm asking questions. Abram doesn't ask questions. He goes. Why? Because he has faith. And that faith is a gift from God. But, he, but God chooses a family. Note that. A, 
the problem of sin in the world, we had the flood, and then not long after that, everything went haywire again. But God chose a family, a covenantal family, to carry God's name into the world. And incidentally, guess what? You and I are brought into this same covenant family of Abraham by faith. You all are children of Abraham by faith. See, Abraham was justified by faith alone, as the Apostle Paul emphasizes repeatedly in the first few chapters of Romans. He was chosen by God, elected to, te- elected to the task of carrying God's name. See, God's intention has been to raise up a child of Eve to destroy the works of the children of the devil, to outlive and to outlast and to outlove the children of the devil. And Abraham was crucial to this calling. It was crucial. He was to have a family. He was to make disciples. He was to combat wickedness in the world. Do you all remember what he did when his son Lot was kidnapped? He went on the warpath. Abraham was a rich man. God blessed him. A very, very wealthy man. He had an entourage, an army, and he went and conquered these other five kings and got Lot back. He was a man of war, a godly war, I should, I should say. And just like you and I are in the family of God, making disciples and combating the wickedness of the world. But Abraham wasn't anything special. You realize that, right? God didn't look at Abram and say, you know, that guy's kind of smart. It seems like someday he might invent the iPhone. Maybe I'll choose him. See, Abram worshipped false gods. He was as pagan as the rest of the world at that point. And yet, despite this religious paganism, he was predestined by the sovereignty of God, by the sovereignty of the covenant Lord of the universe, to serve God and to serve God's purposes. And I'm here to tell you that if you are in covenant with God through confession of faith and baptism, then you too are called to this very same thing. It's not like Jesus just made this up out of thin air. The Great Commission has been the goal of God from the very beginning. You are not predestined and called by the world to carry out the world's demands. You are predestined and called by Christ to carry out His commands. And God has always, always, always intended to save the world. His intention is to save this world, the world that you and I stand upon. He wants to save it. He wants to see to it that people are restored to Him, that nations are restored and healed to Him that families are nurtured, that churches are thriving, that the widow and the orphan are taken care of because that is pure and undefiled religion. He wants to save the world. Why? Because what does John 3.16 tell us? He loves the world. And as gospel-believing people, we know that the only way this happens is when people call out to God in faith trusting in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And the only way people are going to call out to Him is if we go and tell them this great kingdom news. So my challenge to you tonight is this very thing. You are all part of this project. Project Save the World. Project Save the World is God's project and you are called and demanded to to be participants in this calling. But I have so much more I need to cover with you. I need to say this, and I'm going to start with a question. It's a question that's most, most assuredly pertinent to Zambia. How do you know when a nation worships God? (laughs) 
How do you know when a nation worships God? Because it's on paper? Because the president years ago said that it's a Christian nation? How do you know? Would you say that Zambia worships God? Sort of. America kind of worships God, but we're too busy with a different God, the state. But that'll be Saturday night. How do you know? Now think about it. We are called to disciple nations, which I take to mean people groups and cultures, not necessarily nation states only, like what we think of today. And we already have a working definition of what a disciple is, right? A Christian whose aim is glorifying God and absolute obedience to Christ and his law word in every, every area of life and seeing to it that others are doing the same. But how do we know we've been successful at this? How do we know when a nation worships God? Well, let's ask another question that'll maybe help us. How do we know when a nation is steeped in idolatry? And the answer is very, very simple, but before we can understand it, we need to clarify something important. Culture. What is culture? It's a word that means something, right? It could mean a variety of things, depending on who, to whom we are speaking. Um, when people think of culture today, usually they think about music and art. We think about language and social customs, um, things that we just do in our countries that are normal to us everyday occurrences. Um, describing Zambia could consist of hungry lion, pick and pays, maybe a little bit of Bemba, Pastor Mutale, M. <laughs> but you need to know something. Culture isn't morally neutral. There's no neutrality in the world. Culturally, it's, culture isn't morally neutral. And we need a better definition because we can't use man-centered or man-focused definitions to describe man. That's the wrong starting point. So in order to define culture, we need to start with God, which is to say this. You, you need to get this, so write this down. Culture is religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. We can talk about Airtel and Hungry Lion and KFC language, how you all drive on the wrong side of the street. I drive on the wrong side of the street. I couldn't drive here. I would crash very quickly. It's very confusing for me. We could talk about those things, and some of those things are funny. But culture is religion externalized, or perhaps even more to the point, culture is what you get when your religious presuppositions are consistently lived out. See, what the Bible teaches in various places is that man will always become like that which he worships. Man will always become like that which he worships. If he worships idols, Psalm 115 tells us that he will become like those idols. And what are idols? They're deaf, they're dumb, they're, they're mute, they don't speak. Idols are, are, are stupid. See, the opposite, however, is true as well. If we worship God, living constantly quorum Deo, that's before the face of God, we become like him. Not God, we don't eventually become a God. There's no deified thing here. 
but you become like him. And culture is simply our confession of faith that's made manifest in all of our institutions. So if we believe the Bible and we seek to honor God by obeying his commandments, we will value certain things in our culture, won't we? What, what will we value? Well, things like private property. Uh, something belongs to you. I'm not going to steal it from you. That's wrong. We'll value things like just and sound money. My government thinks the answer is to just keep printing money. Guess what they're doing in Zimbabwe? Same thing. That's a moral issue. Uh, but the Bible calls it just weights and measures. We will value things like honoring contracts. If you have a contract with someone, a builder who's going to build a house or somebody who's going to help you with something and you have a contract but you don't show up, that's a religious problem. And now you're, com now you're contributing to a cultural problem. Last year when I came, every single taxi I got in had an empty tank. What is going on? No one has petrol around here? Yeah, there's reasons. But why would you stop for petrol every 50 feet and not taxi and make money? Be diligent. You know, those types of things. There, there, are, there are cultural things. Not stealing from people. Not lying. Honoring your word. Those are religious presuppositions that affect the culture around you. And again, look at South Africa right now. Murder in the streets. Bloodshed. My missionary friend Charles uh, has sent me articles all the time. A family is just killed in cold blood on their farm. That is a religious culture that's working from religious presuppositions. So how do we know a nation honors and worships God? Well, there is freedom and peace. There's economic productivity. And there is justice for the least of these. There's no justice in South Africa. See, freedom can only ring if Christ reigns. Freedom can only ring if Christ reigns. It's a big mantra of America. And in Philadelphia, you can go to the Liberty Bell and you can see it. I've been there several times. I lived in Philadelphia for a while. And you can see the Liberty Bell there. And it's got a crack in it. And there's just a lot of stories behind that. But this idea of freedom and liberty can only be had through the Christian gospel. Peace. Peace can only come if the Prince of Peace is served. Economic abundance and prosperity can only happen if we are concerned with treating others the way we want to be treated. Justice for victims can only happen if we value God's law more than man's law. So how do we know that a nation is steeped in idolatry? Well, there is oppression. There is violence. There is economic instability. And there is injustice all the way from the police to the courts to the judges. See, this, is, this type of nation is a nation that trades in the Great Commission and the Dominion Mandate for the dominion of man over other men. Men wanting to dominate other men. This is the absolute chaos that you're seeing in places like the Congo or South Africa, Zimbabwe, when corrupt leaders choose to pollute the money system and meddle in what should be a free market economy. 
And in my country, we, we have fallen so headlong into idolatry. We have abortion running rampant. 4,000 babies are murdered in my nation every single day. We have a bloated central government that thinks itself to be God, knowing and determining good and evil. More on this in two nights. In other words, if, if the fruit on the tree is rotten, what does that tell you? The tree is dead. And what are dead trees ready for? Destruction. And I say all this because we need to know what we're up against. If we have a call like Isaiah to be a light into the nations, Isaiah 42.6, and rest assured that we do. Israel was a light into the nations, Isaiah 42.6. Then we must not allow ourselves to be deceived by the idolatry that we see. Any disciple who knows the word of God or any missionary who is well versed in these concepts can spot the idols of a nation in a simple glance. If you want to know where the idols lie, search for all the places where injustice runs rampant. Wherever there's a violation of the law of God, there will be idolatry. Where there's idolatry, there is a false view of God and a false view of man. Where there's a false view of God and a false view of man, there's a false view of justice. It's all connected. See, where there is injustice, there is religion being externalized. More on this tomorrow night. And I want to spend the rest of our time explaining something as it relates to my country. The United States of America is oftentimes held up as a beacon of life and liberty. And there's some truth to that. We never really did live up to those ideals. But certainly the principles that were enshrined in our Constitution, they promoted such ideas. But a nation can only adhere to principles such as these, so long as she fears God above everything else. I was reading a verse in Exodus. Do you remember the Hebrew midwives? Remember Pharaoh said you to kill the children? And the Bible says that the midwives feared God more. And so as a result of fearing God more than any man, they obeyed God and they disobeyed that man. And that was justice. And they were blessed for it. See, a nation whose morality is, is completely bent on destroying individual liberty, liberty, all in the name of safety and security, is a nation well on its way to implosion. Because Christian influence has waned in my country, many Christians in my, my country believe that, that the days of Christendom are over. See, when the Reformation spread across Europe four or five hundred years ago, it changed the culture. Widespread wealth and technological advancement, um, prosperity, all of that began um, after the religious idolatry had been exposed. And this advancement was seen not only in, in an increase of like technology, you think of the printing press, but it also was the increase in perpetuation of things like liberty, industry, vocation, calling, dominion. But the, the recovery of the gospel and its widespread influence, it really truly brought prosperity and freedom. The, the Western world had become a bastion of liberty. You know, the Puritans, they left the oppression in England to, to come and found the country that I live in. And, but the problem is they tried to blend Christianity 
with these post-enlightenment rationalism that we talked about last night. So while it is true that America was founded on Christian ideals, you should know it was also founded on deist ideals too. And deism, deism is the belief that there is a God, you know, but he's rather busy at the moment. He's off somewhere doing something more profitable with his time. Thomas Jefferson, many of our founding fathers of our country were deists. I don't know what God was doing, but he wasn't involved here. See, Christendom in the West was built on shaky ground because instead of biblical law and the commands we're talking about from the Great Commission, it was built on humanist law with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in. The, 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 the Declaration of Independence famously says that there's life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness for all. You know, justice for all. It says it right on our Supreme Court building in the United States. Do you think there's justice for all? <laughs> nope. But why? You have to ask the question, why is there injustice then? See, for 200 years, we have committed sin after sin. Slavery, which lasted several hundred years, the first slave ships arrived in 1619, 400 years ago. We fought a bloody civil war. We have a centralized government, thanks to Abraham Lincoln, so that now it wants to reach its tentacles into every institution like the family and the church. You know, I homeschool my children. My wife and I homeschool our children. And um, you, you are familiar with vaccines. Well, vaccines are now being forced they're, in California, they're trying to pass legislation where if you're going to go to public school, you have to be forced. And that's just one step along the way before they're going to force people to do things. They're encroaching on individual liberty. The church in America, we're not supposed to talk about politics. We talk about it all the time because this is God's world. But you can, you, know, you can have tremendous problems on your hands. See, this, this encroachment has led to the erosion of liberty and freedom. And thus, while we are not a communist nation like China, we are, however, we are, however, becoming more and more socialistic, which is just one stop on the way to communism. Now, I say all this to sort of preface what I'm trying to get at, and it's this. No one ministers in a post-Christendom context. No one, none of you are ministering in a post-Christendom context. Christianity, which by and large did build the Western world, has now rejected Christ and moved past Christendom. We don't want Jesus Christ. See, the judgment that is upon us is actually evidence of Christendom being restored. And you might ask, well, how is that? How is it possible to see the utter deterioration of the West, Western Europe, the United States, how is that possible? How can you possibly believe that Jesus is on his throne? How can you possibly believe that the glory days of Christianity are, you know, are still in our future? How could you possibly suggest such a thing? Well, the answer is simple. God judges nations. And one of the ways he displays his sovereign power and authority over the nations is by bringing them to nothing and turning them over to their lusts. And let me tell you what's going to happen if South Africa does not repent. It's just going to keep getting worse and worse. 
and God's judgment will be on them. See, if you, like me, want to see the nations discipled, we need to remember that Christ Jesus is on his throne. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, he is putting his enemies under his feet right this very second. And part of this grand footstooling is the sovereign judgment that he intends to bring. See, the prophetic call of the church looks like us being obedient to Jesus Christ in every realm, infiltrating every crevice of the universe taking it captive, making it obedient to Christ. And make no mistake, the nations do belong to Jesus Christ. He bought them with his blood. And the destiny of the nations is their healing. God wants to heal them. And God intends to accomplish that through you. Doesn't that scare you? See, according to Romans 8, 17, we are joint heirs with Christ. And this means that the jurisdiction falls under our stewardship and responsibility. It's our job, church. It's our job. And each of you have a direct responsibility for seeing to it that the nations are discipled. Your job is to make sure my country doesn't fall so far headlong into idolatry that we repent. Do you believe that? You all have a calling. Psalm 2, verse 8, the Father told the Son to ask for the nations. And in His resurrection, that's what Jesus had done. He asked for the nations, which means that God wants the nations to be taken back, to be reconciled to Him. So Christ fully expects us to accomplish the goal. We, The church, we are the under-shepherd called to gently but assertively guide the nations back towards obedience to Jesus Christ. And the way we do it is by mimicking the Lord Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king. And I want to end with this. As priests of the Lord, you are all priests. We are teachers and we are healers of the nations. We give them solutions to injustice and so forth. Priests instruct and priests offer comfort and consolation. As prophets of the Lord, we are the guardians of God's vision and investment in the world. We rebuke, we correct, we admonish, and we train. We wield the rod against the enemies of Christ, warning them to repent or perish. And lastly, as kings, because we are all prophets, priests, and kings, as kings of the Lord, we are administrators of God's plan of redemption. We are called to be wise like Solomon and as bold and courageous as David. We are seated in the heavenly places and thereby we are now to instruct people in the law of liberty. And as we wrap up, one thing is for certain. This seems rather daunting. It seems like an impossible task, doesn't it? But let me tell you something. Discipling nations is supposed to feel like an insurmountable task. Otherwise, we might be tempted to think that our strength, authority, and wisdom is what did it. Did you catch that? Disciple the nations? He's telling me that I'm responsible for the United States of America? Yeah, okay, good luck. You're supposed to feel the weight of this because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? You still awake with me?
But we need, we need to remember, though, that we go in the authority and the power of Christ. And we need to realize that we receive the Holy Spirit, not so we can keep the Spirit contained to our worship services. We are given the Holy Spirit so that we could bring healing and liberation to nations that are stuck in sin and injustice. And let me tell you this, when the church takes an interest in the affairs of nations, demonstrating through self-sacrifice and service, that's Sunday, the love of God in Christ, when we offer up and fight for solutions to the problems that plague modern man, we can turn the world right side up. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful, so thankful for tonight. I'm thankful for each one who is here. Thank you for, for um, sending them. May, may God, may you bless them. May your spirit bring conviction to them where conviction is needed. May they be um, challenged and encouraged both in the same. And I pray for these dear students that they would not just feel the love of Christ, but live inside the love of Christ every step of the way. So I ask and pray, God, for this time during this conference that that you would be honored most assuredly, but that you would rise, raise up disciples who care about the nations. So we ask God and pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.